0: Welcome to another episode of Near and Far, a podcast series on Catholicism around the globe. My name is Bill Cavanaugh, and I'm director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University, and my task in this episode is a bit daunting because I will be interviewing one of the best interviewers in the English-speaking world. David Cayley was the genius behind the Canadian Broadcasting Company's series ideas on radio one from 1981 until 2012. And under his leadership, it made the best of the scholarly world accessible to a more general audience. David is a Toronto native who graduated from Harvard in 1966, did volunteer work in Borneo and worked for Oxfam in Canada. And he began to see flaws in the standard Western model of development. And from there struck up a friendship with Ivan Illich, a prominent critic of this model of development. And David is the author of many books, including several that began as a a series of interviews with Illich. So welcome, David.
1: Thank you, Bill. Good morning.
0: Good morning. So I'm wondering if you can just uh, begin by uh, introducing Illich to the uninitiated, who was, Ivan Illich, uh, why is he the most important thinker that many people have never heard of?
1: Well, it wasn't always that way. Um, When I met him, he was one of the most famous men in the Western world. But uh, as you related, I I uh, spent a couple of years in Borneo in eastern Malaysia between 1966 and 1968 as a member of CUSO, uh, the Canadian University Service Overseas, which was somewhat similar to the American Peace Corps. And um, when I got back to Canada, quite puzzled about many aspects of my experience, it was Ivan Illich who uh, I found most enlightening as to what had happened. So at that time, he was, um, he was a Catholic priest who had recently undergone uh, inquisition as it would once have been called he was summoned to rome by the holy office and uh, things were made difficult for him in the church although he always insisted on i think correctly on his perfect orthodoxy his educational and political activities were depreciated and he eventually withdrew uh, from the church i mean from the exercise of his the formal exercise of his priesthood he never withdrew of course from the church uh, that was in 1968-69 that all that happened uh, in 1970 he he published his first book uh, celebration of awareness closely followed by de-schooling society tools for conviviality energy and equity and finally limits to medicine, also known as medical nemesis, in which he outlined a, a basically a plea for a constitution of limits for modern societies, claiming uh, that if they did not restrain themselves out of at some threshold, they would enter into what he called paradoxical counterproductivity. in other words a, a situation in which institutions like education, medicine would begin to defeat their own purposes um, and generate so many uh, adverse side effects, including primarily in his view, the the end of all human autonomy uh, that we would become creatures of these institutions um and uh and lose really our capacity to to live and die in terms we can understand ourselves that's that could probably be said better but that was that was the first phase of his work Uh, it made him intensely famous without, I think, any of his proposals being adopted. Um, And it led on then to much more searching inquiry in books like Shadow Work and Gender um, to look into the roots of our understanding of ourselves as trapped in a situation of perpetual scarcity, always in pursuit of growth, always in pursuit of more Never able to stop, never able to find the point at which human societies could restrain themselves and begin to simply live under conditions of what Illich once called enoughness. Um, And that uh, a final phase of his career in which I was very much involved involves uh, searching out the origins of the this modern mind and finding essentially its roots in the roman church and in western christendom so he like charles taylor and others supposed that we live in a kind of mutation of latin christendom um, which he summed up under the uh old adage the corruption of the best is the worst in other words that uh through the attempt to institutionalize Christian understanding and Christian virtue uh, a kind of worst is generated that's that's very abbreviated um, but that that's illich uh, in five minutes
0: okay wonderful <laughs> um, good so i'm I'm hoping that uh Uh, Some of our listeners have have heard of Illich and perhaps read some of his work, but I'm hoping that that little five-minute introduction will have piqued uh, people's curiosity. You got to know Illich on a personal and uh, intellectual uh, level uh, over the last couple of decades of his, well, no, actually, I I mean, you you got to meet him as early as 1968, I think it was. Can you say a little bit about your relationship with Hmm. Illich?
1: Well, I would say the, the first meeting, which uh, was in the late 60s, um, set the direction of, of my thinking in many ways. Um, so I was always a keen reader of him. But uh, a close personal friendship began in 1988, when he, 87, 88, when he came to Toronto. Um, for a conference on orality and literacy put on here by some of the successors of McLuhan at the University of Toronto, of Marshall McLuhan, um, and by, well, I don't want to say by chance. Um, Providence. It happened. It ha- <laughs> It happened. Providence is the <laughs>
0: word Christians use.
1: All right. It certainly was providential. Um, um, Illich was a very sparing writer. He wrote um, the two occasions. He wrote what he felt he was called at a given moment to say. He did not necessarily always say more than that. He never felt he had a theory or a system to disclose. And uh, so I was shocked and surprised at the end of a long interview we did in uh 1988 to have him declare that he thought that the whole of western modernity could be understood as i said a moment ago as an extension of church history and as a corruption of the best which is the worst this i had found no hint of this in his writings uh, i was i was uh, intrigued not to say overthrown by this idea and so i i pressed him and we uh, a little bit and we got to know each other and it so it it happened that i became his amanuensis late in life and uh, in a second series of interviews done in the 19 and 97 98 he laid out this whole uh, idea for me because he never did write it down uh in, in any uh, he never developed the idea he did lecture about it um and that became a book called the rivers north of the future i had wanted to call it the corruption of the best is the worst but my wife talked me out of it saying that was too distressing a title so uh, i think she was right the, the image of the rivers north of the future comes from the German Jewish poet German language poet Paul Cezanne, uh, Who, cr- in a very short poem creates this image of casting his nets into the rivers north of the future. Which I thought was an appropriately mysterious image for Illich's thought. Um, that book was published after his death in 2002 uh thanks to the good offices of charles taylor who contributed a preface it came it began to come to people's attention in a way that he had not been able to get their attention in the last decade of his life and i think he he died feeling rather alone even amongst fellow christians Um, and i think that's not because others were not thinking along the same lines but he wasn't in touch with them, and that's the way it was. So that uh, began, you know, a lot of conversations.
0: Okay, um, interesting. And and you kind of accompanied him uh, up until his death, really.
1: Yes, we were. We became good friends.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to um, start by just diving into the deep end here and asking you to talk about um, our current situation with the COVID pandemic and what Illich might have made of this um, had he still been around uh, now. Um, This is uh, perhaps uh, starting with the the tail rather than the dog, but I think in a lot of ways uh, his response uh, to the COVID pandemic might illustrate some of what makes him so hard to put into the usual categories that we put people into?
1: <clears throat> well, can I begin with a story? Please. Um, I was uh, bemused, let's say, that by the beginning of the pandemic in March, April of 2020, it reminded me of nothing so much as uh, 9-11, when when I had also been astonished to find that the deadly coup de théâtre that had been created by these men who seized the airplanes was instantly, seemingly understood by everybody as, man- as mandating, for example, these disastrous interventions in the Middle East. But also as indicating, as one Toronto columnist said the next morning, the end of the age of irony. So so everyone seemed to instantly know what this meant. Whereas I didn't think I knew at all what it meant and was willing to consider that it might not mean anything much except for those poor souls who who suffered in it. And the pandemic seemed the same to me. Everyone was almost instantly aligned. Those who wouldn't go along... uh, with a policy of lockdown as the British government for a a week or two appeared not to, uh, were were brought into line quickly. And it seemed as if everyone knew exactly how this ought to be dealt with. But something called a lockdown, a term which comes out of prisons Mm -hmm. initially and later was somewhat carelessly applied in schools, I thought, now suddenly was acceptable to all. And the way we should go, it was a a revolutionary departure from previous public health practice and conventional wisdom in public health. As a number of older public health professionals pointed out, uh, their voices were drowned out. Um, So this instant alignment uh, made me consult Ivan, <laughs> as I would, uh, and to write an essay called "The uh, The Pandemic from the Point of View of Ivan Illich," which um, has had quite a career. Uh, Giorgio Agamben, the uh, Italian philosopher, reprinted it on his website, and it it quickly went around the world and seemed to was translated into almost all Western European languages and I was uh, surprised by this, but what I argued in that essay was that the only way you could explain this instant alignment was by a long preparatory period of, of practicing the habits of thought which it required, and these were exactly the habits of thought that Illich was interested in. So he after he wrote his book Medical Nemesis, which still imagined a kind of constitutional limit for medicine, he was asked 10 years later by the Lancet, I think, or the British Medical Journal, perhaps by both, uh, to, recon- to consider what he had written there. And he said, Well, you know, I wouldn't say the same things now. He had written in a famous opening sentence in that book, the medical the medical establishment is the major threat to health. He said, I no longer see such a thing as a medical establishment, I see a system. uh, And a way of thinking. uh, In which. People really are the main threat to health, he said, is the pursuit of health itself, so he in effect said that the prediction he had made in the early 70s had had come to pass that we that we lived as health safety uh risk obsessed people that these categories formed a horizon for us um which was very difficult to think outside so i'm only supposing what Illich would have thought of the pandemic, but I, I think he would have thought that it, it, uh, it, the way it was dealt with is being dealt with still it constituted a kind of a arrival or a revelation, if you like, of habits of of contemporary habits of thought that have been developing for a long time. Uh, and which, are, which I think amount to a kind of health security state um, in which uh, it's impossible to dis- from which it is very difficult to dissent. And this is nothing to do with Yvonne, but it has been preoccupying me for the last year, that we have had an effective censorship um, since the pandemic began <clears throat> Excuse me, which has really removed all scientific dissensus, which is considerable, uh, from our major media. It has simply not been there on the CBC, where I worked all my life, or in our major newspapers, etc. You simply wouldn't know that there's any difference of opinion. So I think Gillich uh, would have been dismayed.
0: So there's just what science says. We're we're told that science says this and we all need to fall into line. There's no kind of element of um, political, social discernment um, uh, on the basis of what the facts are. There's simply this kind of voice of science to which we all must bend the knee.
1: Yes, but, and he, I mean, one of his great points in a book called Tools for Conviviality, was that for people to recover their self-possession, if I can put it like that, uh, they must overcome what he called the delusion about science. And the delusion about science is not anything to do with the proper practice of science or uh, to cultivate certain styles of inquiry. It's it's to believe that there is this single oracular voice that speaks. It's called science, it wears a white coat. And so yeah, I think there was, I mean, there was plentiful scientific dissent. Uh, in, here in Ontario, the former, a former chief medical officer of health was appalled. Uh, by the policy that was followed and i'm in touch with him several former chief provincial medical officers of health but their voices were never heard uh, when three prominent epidemiologists uh, created the so-called great barrington declaration um, suggesting a different policy their voices were not heard um, that was never. That never appeared in any major Canadian medium. So yeah, uh, something called science, uh, a kind of myth or idol, uh, was was created, but it didn't have much to do with individual scientists.
0: So David, distinguish what you're saying here about Illich's views from the views of a kind of standard libertarian who just says you can't tell me what to do um i don't have to wear a mask i can do uh whatever i want i mean there's a there's a definite um concept of freedom in illich but it's not a kind of libertarian idea of freedom it's a uh, he he also talks quite a bit about limits can, can you well talk i, a I bit think about that
1: yeah i mean this is this is um He has something in common with libertarianism. And I think to deny that would be a folly. But he called in the 70s for a redrawing of the political map and said that the left, and this was in an essay called Three Dimensions of Public Option, or public choice, political choice, and claimed that the left-right axis on which we plot political choices is, you know, tells you something. It tells you whether the state or the market predominates, but it doesn't tell you enough. So it doesn't, he, he said there would need to be at least two other axes. One uh, dealing with scale and technological choice because he held that there are tools that are too big to be controlled so what is the nature of the technology involved and how is that assessed and the other one running from having to being terms he borrowed um, from his friend erich from so having to being is essentially does this course of action to be followed this political choice does it enable people to do things Or does it enable them to have things, Uh, i.e., are you getting an education, or are you acquiring educational credentials? Because it was a preoccupation of his that people were becoming less and less competent, and that people were being prevented from doing things and looking after themselves by uh, the predominance of what he called disabling professions. So, if you take those, those are the two axes that are often missing in libertarianism. I think, right? Hmm. Uh, if you just say, "Well, let's leave it to the market,"
0: right?
1: So the the, her- the he would not outright denounce the line of thought running from von Mises uh, through Hayek down to the contemporary libertarians. But his great teacher was Karl Polanyi, who was was more or less the, uh, the enemy of the Viennese school, which produced contemporary libertarianism. Polanyi being the historian who showed how the market is instituted and and requires institutionalization. It doesn't. It is not a natural. It's not a primordial human institution.
0: A, so this is where his uh, ideas on the vernacular uh, and the kind of war on subsistence—that is the the kind of attempt to suppress the vernacular—come uh, into play. Could you talk a little bit about what uh, Illich meant by the vernacular? and uh, and this kind of war of, on subsistence.
1: Yes, I, I'd be happy to. He, he uses that phrase in, in, for the first time in a, a book called Shadow Work, which contains uh, several essays on what he called the vernacular. He, he recognized that he was coining or recoining a term, that there wasn't really a good contemporary term for what he wanted to say. And vernacular was an old latin word for homemade essentially that he thought he could uh repurpose uh, um beyond its the way we have used it in in modern times to refer to sometimes to architecture and mainly to languages um so in that book he has an essay about a a Spanish grammarian called Nebrija, who was one of the uh, prominent humanists of the Renaissance, who um, went to Queen Isabella in 1492, the same year that Columbus sailed, and proposed a grammar of the Castilian language, and made arguments about how um, you know, she could use this uh, codified language To better govern and rule her subjects so uh, there you see his basic idea if you if you run ahead to modern contemporary times one of the things that people have lost is their ability to speak in their own voices so not just individual voices but the voice of a place, of a community, of a region. Um, Generally, uh, speech is is modeled, coined uh, by paid speakers who colonize popular speech. Uh, And so people very often don't know what the words that are in their mouths mean, they can't they can't deploy those words uh, to create personal meaning because the words have been, as it were, preformed for them. So the dream of, the, of a vernacular sphere regrowing is the dream of people regaining the capacity to speak in their own voices, to live on local and personal terms to suffer, to die, to celebrate, to play outside of professional hegemonies. That's essentially what it means.
0: So it's the ability, it's beyond language, it's the ability to make a life for oneself uh, that's not handed down by uh, experts or subject to kind of bureaucratic control.
1: Yes. In the case of medicine, he argued that although medicine generates many uh, side effects and indeed accidentally kills quite a few people, but that the primary problem is that the ability to suffer with dignity, which one may have to do despite medical intervention, And to die on one's own terms is essentially removed from people, right? Right. Life ends when treatment ends. There is no, that was, I mean, absolutely fundamental for him.
0: And he kind of lived this out in his own life. I mean, he he went... uh... The last how many years of his life with a grapefruit sized tumor on the side of his neck that he refused to get medical treatment for, is that right?
1: That is true. he he um, he he was not a a fundamentalist. He accepted certain medical interventions, and it was a big part of his argument in medical nemesis that there should be, uh, you know, a, a generally available kit of, 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 of medical interventions. But in this case, he decided that this, was, that this illness was his to bear. Um, he had various uh, friends made him think that way. Um, yes, and he bore this, this uh, painful tumor for yeah, the last twenty years of his life.
0: So this is another manifestation of what he means by the vernacular. It's the ability to um, manage and decide one's own uh, one's own life, one's own body, um, one's own attitude towards suffering, and and the meaning of one's own death. I suppose.
1: Yes, he was very very radical about that. There's a he wrote sometime in the last part of his life, a a manifesto called hygienic autonomy, which just insists on that for people. Mm -hmm. The right to die without diagnosis, he says.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Um, So the war on subsistence that he talked about um, is, uh, Wendell Berry talks about this as well, the, um, the way that we delegate uh responsibility for our lives to other people we delegate education to professional educators and our bodies to the medical profession and uh and so on and he saw this uh, uh, as kind of one of the ills of uh western ideas of development that were always and and still you know enclosing common lands uh and handing them over to private corporations because it's going to increase uh, efficiency and so on and pushing people from subsistence farming into, um, you know, in, into factories or manual labor, uh, wage labor. And um, in, in this, he's very close to, uh, to Marx really, Marx's critique of the enclosure movement and the movement of people from subsistence into, uh, into factories uh, and so on. But he's, he's quite different from Marx in another way, though, um, you one of the chapters in your book is called Illich as revolutionary, and Marx wants a kind of top-down political revolution, um, and Illich is talking about a very different kind of revolution. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Uh, yes, I, I'd be happy to. Just just to pick up your the word subsistence before we do that. Hmm. I mean, he that was a tough word to deploy because it has a very strongly established meaning as as kind of
0: bare minimum so it sounds like you're romanticizing poverty it
1: sounds like you're romanticizing poverty and he despite all his best efforts i think was often seen that way but subsistence for him meant um livelihood gained uh outside the market it meant whatever um however people gain livelihood um so uh that was that was a, a problem uh, uh in being understood um as to him and marx um he certainly was a keen reader of marx and very interested i his main argument he made it in a little, a little essay called a. Uh, a new theory of alienation, was that Marx uh, dealt only with alienated labor, only, Marx dealt with alienated labor. And he, Illich felt that the problem under professional hegemonies was, you might say alienated humanity, that one was removed as we talked before about the ability to suffer or to die, or, or, or to grieve, um, or to celebrate—not to make it all sound negative—or uh, to speak, um, that that once those abilities are colonized, taken over, uh, where uh, one one can grieve more properly under the guidance of a grievance counselor, um, then there's a new kind of alienation. And you might say that the new proletariat is humanity itself. That's kind of an exaggerated (laughs) way of putting it. But but it's humanity in the sense of humanness as well as of human beings. Um, And so he, in Tools for Conviviality, his most general statement is, he he puts forward the argument that the majority of mankind can still avoid going through all these modern stages if they would only drop the stage theory, which claimed that, I mean... The main claim in the so called development decade, we're now in the 1960s, was that all societies have the same destiny. They will go through the same development and they will come to the same shining city in the end, right?
0: Which is Uh, us, right? Western Europe and the United States. Which is us. Everybody
1: wants to be like us. Which was why it was so valuable to the people in Borneo to have me arrive at age 22 to <laughs> show them the way to the shining city. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, you know, that sta- he was trying to defeat that stage theory and say that people could, and this is, you know, this is disputed about Marx. Did Marx abandon that stage? theory that view that everyone must march through the same stages to get to communism or not? Did he abandon it at the end? Well, that's debated amongst Marxists. Uh, So, you know, but Illich clearly took the view that others could avoid going through these stages. Hmm.
0: So, a, a kind of cultural institutional revolution rather than a, uh, just a political revolution, as he yeah. said. Yeah, I mean, right? he, yeah. in other
1: words, he warned against what has emerged. If you look at dual societies like India or China, where you have a, you have a huge uh, and ecologically destructive middle class But you also have a much, much larger group that are not included. And who whose conditions may have been made worse.
0: Right, right, because you've taken away a kind of dignified subsistence. Yeah, and traded yeah. it for something else. Yeah. So, David, I want to talk about Illich as a specifically Christian thinker. I mean, uh, it, it, Christianity was not something added on to the rest of these views. It was something that was kind of deeply underlying uh, the rest of these uh, views. And, and one of the concepts that was really central to him was incarnation, uh, with both with a small I and a, a capital I uh, as well of the, the incarnation of God in, in the figure of Jesus Christ. Can you say a little bit about um, the importance of incarnation for Illich?
1: Well, he, he in, a, in a, this is at the very beginning of the book I mentioned, The Rivers North of the Future. He defined the incarnation as our freedom to love. Right to find God in one another. And as the event, which announces that this, uh, I, I, I'm afraid to say from now on, but which announces to some at least, that this is how we will find God. So it really is, is that for him. So the encounter between one and the other, the bodily encounter between one and the other, since he insists that this is a real incarnation, the word is made flesh, the same flesh we have. Uh, so yeah, that, that in a way determines everything else that he thinks, I would say, that's, that's the foundation.
0: So the connection with this concept of the vernacular is this sort of fleshly communion among people at a very personal and bodily level that is often uh, then um, destroyed in this kind of tendency we have towards institutionalization and abstraction and disembodiment.
1: Yes, he, he thinks the church is a celebrating community and and that that, and that <laughs> he any, hasn't been
0: around very many churches <laughs> and, and any
1: you know any community can be that right mm-hmm. right uh, and he, indeed he he spent most of his later years amongst people who were scarcely Christian in the formal sense in which we had thought of that term before
0: hmm so, on the theme of this incarnation, he has this brilliant reading of the parable of the good Samaritan that I continue to to come back to. Um, can you say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, he took this the parable of the Samaritan as the a paradigm, as a, a kind of a, a a seed, if you like, of the whole uh, New Testament. And he claimed that it had been uh, widely misunderstood as prescribing a duty. Uh, That the question that Jesus was asked uh, in that passage in the Gospel of Luke was, who is my neighbor? But the parable has been taken as as saying, how should I act towards my neighbor? Vanilla said, no what the main point of the parable was was that you don't know who your neighbor is in advance which the figure of the samaritan uh, is 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 a figure of a quasi-enemy the northern kingdom of israel and judea were estranged and so the samaritan was definitely signifies a foreigner he liked to say a palestinian to dramatize it Um, so the Samaritan who stops and bends to this wounded enemy, let me just say it, uh, is doing precisely what he ought not to do. The the two who pass by are doing what they ought to do. Um, and he he does it anyway, because he's called to do it. And so Illich thinks this story should be read as 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 suggesting that this possibility is always there of of the personal response of the call and it could it could be anywhere, but he also recognizes and this is a important implication of what he says is is that this also is a boundary breaking. discovery or revelation. Uh, and and can have the most catastrophic consequences in the sense uh, of of creating the univer- the society of universal care. Uh, I mean not immediately obviously, but over centuries and millennia. So because you know one definition of a, a society is people who care for one another and who can care for one another because, it's accomplished within limits of language, of culture, of dwelling and so on. So he sees the ambiguity of the tale as well. But yes, it, it, it's, 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 it centrally speaks about what is open to us by way of loving and one another.
0: And so the way that we've been taught to read it is that it universalizes uh, care so instead of just caring for your fellow uh, members of your ethnic group or whatever you care for everybody and so the neighbor is everybody and yeah, that then should, needs to be institutionalized
1: possible the whole road to jericho should be repaved and maybe barriers put up on the side
0: oh paul ramsey has a whole uh, thing where he talks about well why not you know why not have a police force <laughs> to, you know, to, to keep the robbery from happening in the first place. And this is how you you, know, you build yeah. up a whole uh, justification for you know, cluster bombing and whatever you have, yeah. from the, the, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, right? So So Ilich's uh, thought is that uh, the neighbor is not everybody, the neighbor is anybody that, that, that Providence happens to kind of throw in your path and you, you reach out to them, flesh calling out to flesh, as he says, the 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 Greek uh, word is that the the man was moved in his bowels when he saw the the beaten up the the Samaritan was moved in his bowels when he saw the beaten up Jews. Yeah, and, and he and he just responded um, in that kind of immediacy of of flesh, uh, right, calling out to flesh, and, right. And
1: for Illich, that that is completely no one else but the one to whom that happens can know what has happened, right? right. It's right. a personal call. It can't, it can't be predicted. It can't be commanded. It can't be even observed from outside. Hmm. It can only be experienced.
0: It can't be made into a Kantian categorical imperative. Right, Isn't and that, that right? was what yeah.
1: he claimed had happened.
0: Right, right. Well, let, let me ask you a little bit then um, about Illich's views on institutions, because there's, there is this then critique that comes out of this reading, um, which he says that, you know, our care for one another, which comes from the gospel uh, has been institutionalized. And this is one of the things he means by the corruption of the best is, is the worst. Um, But people today don't need to be convinced that institutions are bad news, right? Um, uh, You know, you think of the church, people are leaving in droves. Um, You have uh, the intermediary bodies between the individual and the state are withering away, the churches, the unions, the fraternal organizations, and so on. People are bowling alone. People are kind of isolated, uh, and kind of make different kinds of uh, disembodied encounters on social media, rather than kind of making uh, community institutions and so on. Would would Illich be worried about about that? Um, I mean, has has the critique of institutions gone? Um, too far or how how would he navigate those those ambiguities well
1: i think he um, he at a certain moment um, uh, historically uh, what he saw as an historical opening a moment of christians sometimes say kairos uh, uh, so that he needed to raise this question of what he called institutional revolution. Um, and that, well, we know what happened. Um, he was not anti-institutional in, in any sense, I don't think. He, he, um, So I think it's important to understand that he had a complex mode of thought. I call it complementarity in the book, but he, insofar as you could say what his basic position in the church was from the time of his ordination in 1951 till the time that he was uh, in effect thrown out on his ear, although he threw himself out, um, it was that tradition and innovation are a are a pair that can and must always dance together. The tradition could be the foundation of change if people could hold those ideas together. Uh, But of course, they're always separated. And so he was seen as, I mean, he was a, a very traditional Catholic in many ways. Uh, and and a a great lover of church tradition as he was a great lover of the church Uh, but he was also fearless in in calling for what he uh, named de-clericalization so he's it, it you you can call that paradoxical if if it's paradoxical to hold opposites together in thought. Um, but I think it's, it's very easy to misunderstand him on this point. It's not as if he thought there could have been no church. <laughs> there was gonna be a church, right? <laughs> right? And he understood that it was gonna be a fallen church. Uh, he was humorous on the subject uh, tolerant on the subject, uh, but that so yes, I think he he has to be understood in both these registers at once,
0: so it's no more paradoxical than having a pope who uh wants to attack clericalism and who uh, wants to decentralize the church
1: no no
0: <laughs> um. That might be a good place to um, to to wrap up here. I wonder if you can just say, um, I was just referring to Pope Francis as a kind of um, sign that some of Illich's ideas uh, have have or, or, or maybe have have come to fruition or have, have come into their into their time. Could you end with a with a note of of hope? Where do you see um, some of Uh, Illich's ideas or the currents of thought in which he moved, uh, bearing fruit now and in the future.
1: Well, I I just, before I uh, began this conversation with you, read a splendid essay by two young people who I uh, have a book group in Toronto and who invited me to come and speak with them a couple of weeks ago. I think Illich is being understood widely by lots of people. I think, uh, for me, the pandemic has has posed the problem of how those who think alike and who, um, who would like to be peacemakers, who are not interested in joining the current war um, and who stand in some way unnamed and outside the available categories can find one another. I think it's it's probably pretty inept to to use a monastic image for that. Although I think the, the monastic metaphors is is, is helpful. And Illich, throughout his uh, later career, called for ascetic habits. He used the term escasis, um, particularly in relation to technology and the, the images of ourselves we derive from our technologies. So he was clearly uh, preaching a new kind of ascesis, And I see many people as, that I meet as practicing that. So he, it's amazing how well he's understood in this essay by my two young friends, for example, how articulately. And I think that's widespread. I don't know how widespread. But I think we're, we're going to have to stick together, comfort one another, learn how to address the world, um, yeah, and to manifest as best we can.
0: Well, David, if Ivan uh, Illich is being understood well today, it's largely through your efforts. Um, I want to mention especially your latest book, Ivan Illich An Intellectual Journey, Penn State University Press, just, just out in 2021. Um, the most comprehensive and uh, interesting uh, and really brilliant uh, analysis of Illich's work um, that's available. So, um, David Cayley, thank you so you, much.
1: Will yeah. you permit me a personal word at the end? Yeah, please. If it hadn't, if it hadn't been for you, that book might never have been published. Your, your endorsement of it was, I think, a crucial a moment in its publishing history. So huh. may I thank you?
0: I, I am glad to have played a small role in that, but um, I think you've exaggerated the importance of my well, endorsement to that. It's a brilliant book, and someone certainly would have would have published it. I, it's a it's a really wonderful, uh, wonderfully done w- book. So, David, um, thank you so much. This has pleasure. been really enjoyable. My pleasure. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world, with special attention to the church in the global south. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, the Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Marlon Aguilar, Finnegan Chu, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the Center and its activities, look for the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology on the web, Facebook, Twitter, Vimeo, and YouTube.